So we're starting our series on uh, Genesis, and uh, the material that we'll be calling, uh, covering today uh, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first four words. So if you're memorizing the book along the way, you can handle this. In the beginning, God. So you can repeat that. In the beginning, God. Okay, you've got that. So, so you're already on target for memorizing the book of Genesis. So uh, we'll go. And, um, but thoughts to begin with, with as we commence our, uh, our study. Number one, um, when we come to the scriptures in particular, looking at the book of Genesis, um, we recognize that this is all about God. And we'll, we'll focus on uh, the theocentric or God-centered aspect of the book of Genesis. Um, that will become more evident a little bit further along. But we come to the Bible recognizing that God has created all that exists, literally all that exists, by his declaration. And there are two Latin expressions that are not difficult to grasp, so I'll use them. Uh, Fiat, creation, and ex nihilo. Uh, Fiat comes from the Latin verb fio, meaning to happen, and literally means, by fiat means let it be, uh, by declaration. Ex nihilo means literally out of nothing. And those are both very important expressions. Normally I wouldn't belabor you with Latin expressions, but, uh, but fiat creation is by declaration. And God said, let there be, and there was. And ex nihilo, he created everything that exists out of nothing. God is literally the only uncreated being in all of time, well, in all of eternity, because he created time. But in all of eternity, uh, everything else and everyone else has been created. But God himself, and we'll discuss this more next week, Lord willing, but uh, he's the only uncreated one. Think about the implications of that, simply that there were literally what existed before creation, God existed before creation. Time did not exist. Material space did not exist. Um, there was nothing except God. God was completely self-sufficient in and of himself, perfectly content with the fact that he alone existed. And we'll, again, explore this more fully next time when we talk about the aspect of the aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, of God, the self-existence of God, which is a very fundamental attribute, and some would argue that it's the attribute from which all other attributes spring. But the work of creation, and I'm going to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism because it very succinctly, very accurately conveys what we've just said, fiat creation out of nothing. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. That's, that's a very succinct, very accurate description of what the opening chapters of the book of Genesis are all about. God created everything that exists other than himself. All things of nothing, that's ex nihilo, by the word of his power, that's fiat, in the space of six days. And the, the word days is a very important concept, and we'll talk about that. But literally, normal days, 24-hour days. 
and all very good. At the end of chapter 1, God declared everything that he made as very good. Genesis begins with the simple attestation that God created all that is. There is no explanation for God. There is no argument for God. There doesn't begin with an apologetic for God. It simply begins with a statement, in the beginning, God. It's his book. It's his declaration. And it's important to remember that Moses, the human author of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Pentateuch during the wilderness wanderings, 40-year period after the Exodus. And we need to remember that all that Israel had experienced when they were relieved of bondage in Egypt was 400 years of paganism, 400 years of polytheism, 400 years of, of doctrinal error. So they needed to know who their God is. And Genesis and the Pentateuch in its totality provide a biblical worldview. Because if they had not related to them who exists because of God's creation and how it came into being, they would not have known that. They, they literally had, for decades, for, for centuries, for four centuries, had been instilled with nothing but paganism. And so we have a biblical worldview, and, and we need that today, just as the Israelites did in the wilderness. We need to, to have a biblical worldview. But Genesis does not begin with an argument for God. It simply be, it starts in the beginning God. And the scripture very clearly, unequivocally states that all creation reveals the existence and the character of the living and true God. Psalm 19, you know this, Psalm 19 speaks of the revelation of God both in creation and in the scriptures, uh, both in terms of natural revelation and specific special revelation in what God has created that attests to his character and uh, in the latter part of Psalm 19, it speaks of the, the word of God itself. But the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that the creation reveals the character of God, that, it, that, that all are accountable for the revelation in nature. It does not provide sufficient information to save us, but it provides sufficient information to uh, show very clearly the character of God. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, what, without excuse. There is no person that can truly argue that there is no God, because creation unequivocally asserts and proves that there is a God, and it shows the character of God. We affirm the inspiration, and these are all very important words. The inspiration literally means God breathed. We use the word inspiration to mean we're taking in something, but the New Testament uses the word inspiration to mean God breathed it out, and he used a human instrumentality to record the scriptures. But you have all of these writers of scripture that are expressing their own individual styles of writing and different genres of writing. But in each and every case, all that is written was supernaturally superintended by the Holy Spirit 
so that what we have is the very word of God. That's inspiration and inerrancy, that there is no error in all of Scripture. The Scripture does record false statements, but it records it as a false statement. So when you have Satan contesting, as God said, it records it as a lie, records it as a deception by the Satan himself. The authority, the scriptures provide all that we need for faith and practice. It it literally is all that we need to know to live in ways that please God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on. Psalm 19 affirms the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God. So we affirm what's written in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture, all of scripture, uh, 66 books, is given by inspiration of God and profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This next point is very important. Uh, We believe that the Bible must be understood in a straightforward manner according to its literary context. Sometimes the theologians will talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture. That means the clarity of Scripture. That does not mean that all things are equally clear. That means that the Scripture interprets Scripture. We call that the analogy of faith. And so the Scripture is its own commentator, its own um, explainer, so to speak, of itself. Um, and, not, and some things are more evident, more clear than others. But there's no confusion, there's no ambiguity as to those things that we need to know in order to be properly related to God and to know his character, to know his attributes, his words, his ways, etc. But there are different genres or different styles of, uh, of literary content in, in the scriptures. And, and that's a, a, a very important point for us to make. Top of page two. Genesis is history, and I I will make that statement and we'll support that as we go along. But the opening chapters of Genesis are not poetry, uh, they're not parable, uh, they're not allegory. It's history. It's intended to be read exactly at face value. And when the opening chapters of Genesis are read in some other way, inevitably it results in some defection from the truth. So you begin to interpret uh, the opening chapters of Genesis, particularly when it comes to Adam and the days of creation and marriage and all of these other things. If we don't read it literally as normally, when when I'll use the term literal, but sometimes that term is not properly understood. When I talk about reading the scripture literally, I'm referring to reading it at face value. A person normally would accept it. So you're reading a, a... historical account of what took place when God created all that exists. And so we are to approach the creation narrative, and that's exactly what it is, as historical in nature and to be interpreted as such. There are other types of literature in the scripture. There's poetry, and when poetry is used, it's right and true. When it's prophecy, it's right and true. Uh, There are prophetic passages in Genesis, but uh, it's very clear that it's prophetic in nature. Um, etc. There's Henry Morris, um, Morris and Whitcomb. If you're not familiar with those two, they they did some very, very good work on the doctrine of creation, uh, the Genesis flood, etc. But uh, Morris said this, the only proper way to interpret Genesis 1 is not to interpret it at all. In other words, read it, accept it, 
as you would another account, as, as you would a, a, a statement about what transpired, and not read into it, not try to make it into something that it isn't, but to accept the fact that it is meant to say exactly what it says. Um, and historically, that's the way that the opening chapters of Genesis have been read, and that's exactly how we should approach the, these words. Sometimes people will say, why are we studying Genesis? And, uh, and sometimes we, we, we had a conversation recently about how important is it that we study not only the book of Genesis, but in particular the opening chapters of Genesis. And Genesis really falls into uh, two, ca- two sections. Genesis 1 through 11 uh, is primeval history, and Genesis 12 through 50 is patriarchal history. There's other ways of dividing it, but most people would say Genesis 1 through 11 and then Genesis 12 through the, through the end of the, the book. Um, but it's not an, under, not an overstatement to say that the Scripture as a whole would be somewhat unintelligible and, and unsupported if we didn't have the book of Genesis. Let me, let me read a couple of uh, statements by various authors that I think will support that. One author says this, The book of Genesis does for the Pentateuch what the Pentateuch does for the rest of the Old Testament which the Old Testament does for the rest of the Bible, and which the Bible does for the history of the world. As human history is unintelligible without the Bible, so is the New Testament without the Old, and so is the Old Testament without the Pentateuch, and so would the Pentateuch be without Genesis. And and there's a commentator by the name of Matthews, and he made this statement, and and it really is very succinct and, and very helpful. If we possessed a Bible without Genesis we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. To study Genesis is to consider not only the origin of life, but the foundation upon which faith in Christ is built. Now, we'll establish that. If you look at the doctrines of Scripture, creation, sin, redemption, the character of God himself, the works of God, all of those doctrines find their foundation in the book of Genesis. And everything I just mentioned literally is covered in the opening chapters of Genesis. That doesn't mean that Genesis contains everything that we need to know in all of Scripture, because that's why we have 66 books in the canon of Scripture. But it is an absolutely true statement that every doctrine in Scripture of any consequence finds its, its foundation in Genesis itself. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But what foundations are those? Sin, Genesis 3. The fall, Genesis 3. Redemption, Genesis 3. Justification, Genesis 15. The promise of the Messiah, Genesis 3. The personality and personhood of God, Genesis 1. All of those things are are literally covered in the opening chapters of Genesis. Top of page 3. Genesis shows us the origin of the universe, order and complexity, the solar system, the atmosphere and hydrosphere, life, man, marriage, good and evil, language, government, culture, nations, religion. And it's precisely the case that when people have abandoned a proper understanding of the opening chapters of Genesis that they ultimately run off the rails on all of the doctrines that we just talked about. 
when we don't understand that all life was created by God, then think of the implications of that. Can you look at our culture and see the implications of abandoning the truth that all life comes from God himself? Can you look at our culture and see the implications of the fact that God created marriage between a man and a woman? God created a binary world. He created man and he created woman out of man. And he joined man and woman in the covenant of marriage. And we don't have to belabor this, but you you can look and see the implications all around us in culture. When when people abandon these foundational truths, you can see the devastation that occurs as a result of that. Where do we find the, the plan of redemption first articulated? We find it in Genesis 3, verse 15. And where do we find the entrance of sin into the world? We find it in Genesis 3. Where do we find the promise of redemption? We find it in Genesis 3. Where do we find the the fact that the the taking of innocent life is a most severe capital offense? Genesis 9. Where do we find the wrath of God poured out upon mankind? We find it in the flood. Where do we find sacrifices being made? We find it in the book of Genesis. And we find also that sacrifices are a shadow of Christ. And and so they're not sufficient in and of themselves. They are pointing to the sufficiency of one that ultimately would come to sacrifice himself for our sins. And all of that is encapsulated, by the way, in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of the woman who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, the the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And and we'll spend some sufficient time on Genesis 3.15. So all of these doctrines, government, Marriage, life, good and evil, all of these things have have found their their foundation in the book of Genesis. Um, Some some resources. If you're not familiar with Answers in Genesis in the Institute for Creation Research, you should please make yourself familiar with those resources. They are extremely helpful and very sound. Uh, Answers in Genesis has an article uh, that, that came out a few years ago. Uh, and um, it, it talks about New Testament texts in Genesis 1 through 11. And it makes a statement, and it's so helpful, that the authors of the New Testament refer back to the his- historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 in order to make a number of theological points. And there's 10 of them that they cite. I'm just going to refer to one of them. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 6 through 8, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1:27. And Genesis 2.24 in a very straightforward historical manner. And what Jesus is doing is he's establishing the pattern for marriage. And he's dealing with the issue of divorce. And he's settling a dispute over the question of divorce. And it's grounded in the creation and purpose of the first marriage. And that's uh, where do we find that? We find that in the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2.24, where God took a man and a woman and They were to leave and cleave and become one flesh. Uh, And so God created the institution, the covenant of marriage. And and so we find the fact that it is a covenant. We find the fact that it is a joining of two uh, into one flesh. And and so the New Testament solidly grounds the doctrine of marriage and the question of divorce in the historicity of the opening chapters of Genesis. And uh, Jesus said in verse 6, from the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. And that expression from the beginning of creation uh, refers to literally the beginning of what, we, of, of, of what God spoke into existence, not, not the finality of, 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 of think what things were as they ultimately became. But if you were to ask a secular scientist about the age of the world, they would say that it would be several billion years. And so how are we to understand what Jesus said when he said from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female? He literally means not 3.8 billion years later. He means literally within hours of when he started creating the world, literally within hours, within days. Not months, not years, certainly not billions of years. And so the foundation of marriage is created literally from the inception of God speaking all that exists out of nothing into existence by his own declaration. And so there is an example. Uh, we have the New Testament, Mark 10, Mark 19, uh, pardon me, Matthew 19, referring very specifically to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, to make these statements. And, and so... In the notes on page 3, there are 165 passages in Genesis itself that are either directly quoted or there are allusions, references to them in the New Testament. And some of those passages, 165 passages, are used more than once. So that probably means something closer to 200 quotations or allusions directly from the book of Genesis in the New Testament itself. Uh, and so you have um, Martin Luther, the reformer, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and the stories that will often meet him in Genesis. Should not doubt, however simple they may seem, that these are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. So we have all of these quotations of the book of Genesis in the New Testament. Um, and, and so you've got um, 60 allusions or quotations from the New Testament itself to Genesis 1 through 11 out of those 200 that I just mentioned, either direct quotations or allusions. And an allusion would be a reference without specifically quoting a particular passage, but it's obvious from that uh, citation that the author is referring back uh, to a revelation that God has made that would be an allusion as opposed to a direct citation, a direct quotation. But of those 200 that we just mentioned, 60 of those are in Genesis 1 through 11. And, and so that's Genesis 1 through 11 are going to be primarily uh, the area that we'll be focusing on in our study of Genesis, but we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. Um, but just by way of background, you know the, the Genesis is the uh, first book of the Bible. It, it's in the Hebrew Bible. It, the, the Jews would call the um, the books of the Bible by the first Hebrew word in the text itself, and the Hebrew word is bereshit. So, if you were looking at a a, a Hebraic scripture, uh, it would be called bereshit uh, in the beginning. Um, and then, in the, the way we got the word Genesis is. Uh, the Latin Vulgate took uh, the word for beginning, and that's where we get the word Genesis. So in both the Hebrew Bible and in the Latin Vulgate, that we get the term Genesis directly from the opening words of this text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. So when was it written? It was written from uh, the, the Exodus itself uh, from roughly 1446 to 1406 B.C., 
Um, I'm going to go over to page six now. I told you we'd jump over a few, but we'll, don't worry. We'll go back. We'll, we'll touch on some of those others. What's the purpose of Genesis? We talked about the significance of Genesis in terms of providing a foundation uh, for all of these other doctrines that we find throughout the, the New Testament, throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, we've talked about the literary dependence of the entirety of Scripture upon, these, upon Genesis and even the opening chapters. But the, the purpose of Genesis really is to provide for us the, the storyline of the plan of redemption. When I use the storyline, I'm talking about there's a narrative that, that is going to unfold. I'm not talking about anything fictitious. I'm going to use the term storyline. I'm talking about a, a plot that God has developed uh, to redeem fallen mankind. And it finds its inception in Genesis, and it plays itself out through the totality of the book of Genesis. But um, the purpose really falls into three categories, uh, theological, historical, and covenantal. Uh, It's theological uh, because it reveals who God is. Uh, God is the creator, uh, the one who literally uh, in eternity uh, ordained that there would be something other than himself. Um, And recall, of course, that God didn't need anything. He didn't sometimes... And I hate to even say this, it's, it's so embarrassing to even refer to this, but sometimes people will say that God created man simply to provide fellowship with himself. You, you realize how fallacious that, that is, right? I hope, I hope I'm seeing some people nodding their heads. That's encouraging. You should be nodding your heads with that. God, God doesn't need anything. Why does he save anyone from perdition? Out of love, because it pleased him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the praise of the glory of his grace. In Ephesians 1, we read that. Why does God do what he does? Because it pleases him. He's under no compulsion whatsoever to do anything. He's completely satisfied in and of himself. God has a relationship within himself. He's a triune God. And there's nothing that God needs. God is not incomplete. God is fully self-sufficient fully self-existent, fully delighted in himself. And so when we see the fact that God spoke all that exists out of nothing uh, into existence by the word of his power, he did that for one reason and one reason only, for his own glory, because it pleased him. That's why he does anything that he does, for his own glory, not out of a sense of fulfillment, not out of a sense of being incomplete, uh, but simply, we, we talk about the eternal decrees of God, which are his purpose, which he has ordained in eternity according to his own will. And he's foreordained all that takes place to accomplish those eternal purposes, his decrees. And he plays out his decrees in two ways, in providence, which is the way he governs all of his world that he's created, and in creation. And so he creates all that exists and governs all that exists to the end that that he may be glorified, that he may be exalted. Uh, And and so we we need to to remember that. It's theological, and that should set our understanding of redemption. Uh, In our care group, we've been talking about the the book of Romans. And so when we look at redemption and we look at justification, we see that God is righteous in all he does. And, And so who is it that God saves? 
those whom he pleases to save. Why does he save them? To show his own righteousness, because I'll simply use an example. Justification is God's declaration that sins have been forgiven and that the beneficiaries of justification are regarded as righteous, not for any inherent righteousness in themselves, but only because of the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. And what is God doing? Romans 3.26 says that he might be just and justifier. So how is it that a righteous God who is immutable, unchanging, that is eternal, that never, never changes, is always the same, always perfect, he's infinite, how is it that a perfectly holy God brings unrighteous people into his own heaven so that they might praise him forever? And the answer is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to pay for sin and that his righteousness would be imputed to those whom God has decreed to save from all eternity so that God would be just and justifier. At no point has God ever compromised any aspect of his moral character. And so we, we look, for instance, at the doctrine of justification, and it's a, it's a vindication of the righteousness of God. And we see that the purpose of, of salvation is to the praise of the glory of his grace. You find that repeated three times in, in the opening chapter of Ephesians, for instance. Why does he, he save? He, he's chosen us. Who, who was us? Those whom he's going to save in himself in eternity past according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why God does anything that he does. Well, it's historical because we would have no foundational truth about how history began. There was no time before God created time. There was no space. There was no matter before God created space and matter. So how did we, everything that we see, how did it come into being? It came into being because God spoke it into, into being. Let there be, and there was, immediately. It, it, it did not require the passage of time. He, it, he spoke, and it was. He did not create all things simultaneously. Uh, he, he spoke it in a matter of days, in normal days. And why did he do it that way? Because it pleased him to create all that is in a pattern of six days and to rest on the at the end of the sixth day so that he would consecrate the seventh day, not because he was... In need of rest, of course, that's a ludicrous notion, but he rested on the seventh day because he looked at all that he'd made at the end of Genesis 1. He saw that it was very good, and so he stopped. And we have the cessation of creation at the end of day 6 and day 7. He blessed it, and he sanctified it, and that's why we have the Sabbath. That's why we have a day that he set apart for himself, which in the New Testament is the the day when we commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, verse 7 speaks to that. But it's historical because it gives us the inception of man. It gives us the inception of the nation of Israel and why Israel was created, what the future of Israel is all about. Uh, And and so we we have this, this history of Adam and the human race. So we have theological implications. We have historical implications. And then it's covenantal because it it shows the fact that God has operated with his creation within the fabric of covenants. And so what covenants do we find in the the book of Genesis? The Noahic covenant would be an example. The Abrahamic covenant uh, is is a very, very important covenant. We'll see that in Genesis 12. Uh, But God enters into covenants. Why does God enter into covenants? 
most of them are unilateral. God is, is simply, there are some that are bilateral, but, but, but God, for the most part, enters into unilateral comments. He commits himself to his creation that he's going to accomplish certain purposes. When you look at the covenant with Abraham, he's promising a land, a seed, and a blessing. And, and so God has created that, and he is fulfilling that, and he will ultimately fulfill that. But the fabric of God's work is, is covenantal in nature. Um, I mentioned earlier the importance of the worldview, and I'll simply reiterate this. Everything that I just said was brand new information to Israel. Because, again, bear in mind, and I realize this is repetitious, but what have they experienced for generations and generations. For 400 years, they had been in Egypt. What was the culture like in Egypt? It was polytheistic. It was pagan. Uh, you had a, a multiplicity of pagan gods, demons, literally. And and so think about what took place in the Exodus. What did God do in, in, when he in the Exodus? Well, first of all, he entered into a series of judgments, plagues upon Egypt, and you can literally trace those plagues to a systematic decimation of the pagan deities in Egypt. They were targeted not only to show the power of God, but to show the supremacy of God over all other contenders to be God, all of the false gods. So when you had uh, the, the cattle being destroyed, there was a God that was associated with cattle. When you had the Nile River being turned into blood, there was a God that was associated, small g, a God that was a pagan deity that was associated with the well-being of, of Egypt, which was largely tied to the Nile River. And so God is showing his supremacy of all that is. Did that provide Israel with everything they needed to know about God? No, it did not. That's, that's why you have Moses writing in the 40-year period from the time of the Exodus to the interest in, in, entrance into the Promised Land, the five books that we call the Torah or the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses. And so the, those books are providing for Israel and they're providing for us a biblical worldview that shows all of these doctrines of sin. Where did sin come from? Well, the Israelites didn't understand that. They saw the effects of sin all around them. But how did sin come into the world? And so Moses is recording under the inspiration of the Spirit what, how sin entered into the world through the transgression of Adam and Eve, through the deception of Satan himself. They would not have known that if, if, if it had not been this revelation. And so how do we know about the character of God and, and his holiness and his justice? They, they certainly had no experience with that. How did they know about what it means to have faith? Well. It's recorded for us when God made the, the, the declaration uh, to Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What's that all about? Well, there was a promise to Abraham that through Sarah he would have descendants as vast as the, as the stars of the sky. And, and, and so Abraham, what did he do? He looked up into the sky and, and, and what did he do? And it was, understand that it was humanly impossible for that to take place, even not to have a multiplicity of, of children, but to have any children at his age. But God said, it's going to happen. And Sarah laughed, and, and, and God said, no, it's going to happen. And, but there was, so Abraham looks up into the sky, and he looks at this vast number of stars, and he exercises faith. And he says, yeah, I believe. And, and God says, 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, the doctrine of faith. That's, that's believing in the promises of God. That's essentially the, the, the kernel, the, the seminal concept of what saving faith is looking like. You're believing in the promises of God. You're, you're taking the statements of God at face value as to what he says. And, and so this biblical worldview is of critical importance. We'll go over to page 11. And this is where we will end up for the day. But in the middle of the page, there, there's something that's helpful from uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas. And this ties in with the what I've just been commenting about, the importance of Genesis providing a, a robust biblical worldview about who God is, what God does, why he does what he does, how, how we can be related to God, what God hates, what God loves, all of those things. How important is Genesis 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism because God is transcendent to that which he's created. Romans 1 talks about the fact that men looked at the creation and they worshiped the, create, the creature rather than the creator. That's all around us today. That is literally the, the, the fabric of the world that we live in. We worship the creation, we, the culture, rather than the creator. They don't call it pantheism, but it, it essentially is pantheism. It refutes polytheism for God, one God created all things. Clearly, the direct antithesis of what they've seen in Egypt for 400 years. It refutes materialism because matter had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth out of nothing. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. He needs no partners. He needs no no person or, or party to help. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. Do we need to be reminded of that today? We, we definitely need to be reminded of, of that very fact. It refutes evolutionism because God created all things. And um, I, I just remember that by the grace of God, when I was a brand new believer, I was um, uh, on a pre-med track and I was taking biology and chemistry. And all I ever heard was evolution, 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 evolution. And it just made no sense to me at all. And because God in his grace showed me what a fictitious concept that is. It's essentially a religious conviction, not a scientific conviction. And, and so those of us who know the, the God and we understand who God is and under the, under the, the enlightenment of the, of the Holy Spirit, we look at these, these doctrines like evolution and we say, that comes straight from the pit of hell. It literally does, because it, it's, it's, it's a direct statement, has God said? And evolution is saying, has God said? And the answer that evolution would say is, no, God is, he may have said that, but he lied to you when he said he created it all. That's what evolution is saying, that God's a liar. And, and so we need to have the, 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 the biblical worldview that is articulated for us in Genesis. Well, I started off by saying that, that midway, I guess I should say, that, that Genesis is theological. And I'm going to show you, I hope, that in Genesis 1, that the book of Genesis is theocentric. That's just a fancy way of saying God-centered from start to finish. Uh, one person has said that the first four words, that's what we're covering today in the beginning God, form the keynote of the book. Well, how do we establish that? Look over on page 12. In Genesis 1, 
I have highlighted for you on page 12 and page 13 some very important words. Do you see those words that I've highlighted? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I should have italicized this. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse. God called the expanse heaven. God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered. God called the dry land earth. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth spring forth uh, vegetation. God saw that it was good. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. God made two great lights. Do I need to go on? Do you you see the point that's being made here? Who's the party that that this chapter is all about? It's obvious. There's only one player in this whole chapter, God. Do you you, you see any other participants in what's taking place here? No, God is saying, let there be, and there is. And he's naming it, and he's declaring it good, and he's dividing and he's shaping, and he's forming, and, and ultimately, over on page 12, at the end of, of verse 31, I mistakenly referenced 32 earlier, but verse 31, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The book of Genesis is all about God. And, and, and the book, the, the scriptures themselves are all about God and, and his redemptive plan. And his purposes, and, and, and it will establish that God is doing things because it pleases him, because he's sovereign. Because we were looking at the book of Romans last night and the potter and the clay. There is one potter, and the potter is God. And the clay is all that he's made. And the clay will not say to the potter, why should you make me so? God has complete prerogative over what he makes. So there is one creator, there's one God, and we're not it. And, and so if we, if we don't grasp that, and our culture clearly has not grasped that, that's the essence of sin is a, 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 a misplaced sense of autonomy. Autonomy is seeking to be in charge. Brothers and sisters, we're not in charge. God is completely in charge. And, and if we've established anything in the opening chapters of Genesis, it's that God is God, and he's created all that is, and he's governing all that is, and he's doing it out of perfect wisdom and power for his own glory. And, and so as we go through these chapters, you're going to see unfolding a redemptive plan that God has entered, entered into simply because it pleases him. And he does it with perfection because everything that God does is absolutely perfect. And, it, and it's beautiful to behold. And so that's, that's kind of the introduction. We'll, we'll flesh this out in more detail uh, next week, Lord willing.